please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Got a quick quiz for you this morning as we begin. Uh, everybody knows the shortest verse in the Bible, right? To what? Jesus wept? <laughs> it's not Jesus wept. Sorry, that's not it. It's not Jesus wept. What is it? Rejoice always. You should have gotten a clue because it's right there. First Thessalonians 5, 16. It's, it's rejoice always. Okay, so second shortest verse in the Bible. It's not Jesus wept either. It's a trap. Rejoice always is the shortest. Pray without ceasing is the second shortest because in Greek... I know it's kind of cheating, isn't it? But that's the way it goes. Those are both two words in Greek. Jesus wept is three words because you have to have a definite article in front of Jesus' name. Anyway, I'm just saying. <laughs> Jesus wept is, is, uh, is three words. Rejoice always is the shortest. Pray without ceasing is second. Jesus wept is third. Let's read those, uh, two of those three this morning, all right? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I've always found it a paradox that of the three shortest verses, you have rejoice always and Jesus wept. Rejoice always and Jesus wept. Uh, We know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, right? All all the verses somehow fit together to form a a single message, a single theme. Uh, So how do we fit these together? I don't know if you've noticed, but some of the greatest praise hymns that have ever been written were written subsequent to or in the midst of really terrible circumstances. Uh, One of my favorite hymns is by a man named Martin Rinkhart. It's called Now Thank We All Our God. Uh, Rinkhart was born in Eilenburg, Germany, and he became pastor of his hometown church in uh, 1618, right as the Thirty Years' War was breaking out. And so he spent almost all of his adult life in terrible circumstances. Eilenburg was a walled city, and so frequently as they were uh, surrounded by enemies, they would suffer from famines and plagues would come in. Uh, They would lack food and water. It was just a a time of incredible suffering. Uh, One year, 1637, was a really difficult year, and uh, nearly every day of that year, Rinkhart was performing up to 40 funerals a day. Can you imagine? You know, obviously, they were not long affairs. <laughs> he would go to people's homes, and he would conduct a funeral, and he'd go on to the next house, and he'd do that all day long, day after day, day after day. Well, in the midst of these circumstances, he wrote this hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. The first verse goes like this. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done in whom this, his world rejoices. Who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. And then the third verse. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore. For thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. It's a a hymn that is calling people to constantly worship and praise God and give him thanks. Wishful thinking? This last week there was an article in the Eagle. It was by a man named Seth Bornstein. It was an AP article that the Eagle printed. And uh, Bornstein was reporting on the psychology of gratitude. And he wrote this. 
There have been many thanksgivings throughout history that might challenge society's ability to be grateful. The first thanksgiving with the pilgrims came after about half of the Plymouth colony died in the first year. Thanksgiving became a national holiday in the United States when Abraham Lincoln proclaimed it in 1863 during the Civil War, the deadliest war the country has ever known. And the holiday moved to the fourth Thursday in November during the tail end of the Great Depression. And we know from Scripture that the Apostle Paul constantly uh, exhorted churches throughout the Roman Empire who were suffering, who were being persecuted, who were having their property seized, who were losing their lives. He constantly exhorted them, rejoice, be thankful. It wasn't just the Thessalonian believers that he exhorted to rejoice. Uh, The Philippians and others, he would say, uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So what was it that Paul was encouraging them to do? And how does it fit with also weeping at the same time? How does it fit rejoicing in the midst of circumstances that are really difficult and trying and testing? I think what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that we have to actually choose joy. What he's saying is fundamentally rejoicing or joy is not an emotion. Fundamentally, it is a choice. It's an imperative. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. As he says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's the imperative repeated twice. And an imperative implies something. It implies that we can actually obey it, that we can choose to obey. We can't immediately control our feelings. It's not happiness. He's not saying be happy. In the midst of doing 40 to 50 funerals a day, Martin, be happy. He's not exhorting us or anyone else to pretend. He's exhorting us to make a choice. I want you to turn with me uh, back to John chapter 11, and let's look for some insight into this passage in which the third shortest book, verse in the Bible, appears. John chapter 11. I want us to read beginning in verse 32. John writes, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And the word isn't he just let one tear fall from his eye. It's Jesus wept. You know, the setting is that Jesus was good friends with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. The three of them had become close, personal friends of Jesus. Apparently had traveled with him at times. He'd spent a lot of time with his family. Lazarus was sick. Jesus was delayed. And before he got there, Lazarus passed away. He died. And Jesus met Martha first, and Martha was weeping, and she said the same thing Mary said. She said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus moves on, and then he sees Mary, and Mary says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He says, take me to the tomb. He goes to the tomb, and everyone is standing around, and they're weeping, and they're mourning. And Jesus sees this, and he, and he weeps. Why? Okay, other than, other than the obvious, okay, I want you to think about it for a minute. Why did Jesus weep? Did he weep just because Lazarus had died? I don't think so. I don't think so. Remember the story. Uh, Jesus was with his disciples and he receives word that Lazarus is sick. And he intentionally stays put. He doesn't go. 
And he delays. He delays several days. He delays several days in order that Lazarus can die. He knows that Lazarus will die. And he knows that if he had gone earlier, Lazarus would not have died. He could have healed him from that sickness. So I don't think it's simply that uh, Lazarus had died because he also knew that in just a few minutes he would raise him from the dead, right? So that's not the reason he's weeping. So uh, was he weeping because of the sister's sorrow? I don't think he's weeping for that either because he knows in just really literally a few moments he's going to change their sorrow to ecstatic joy. They're going to be uh, crying tears of joy in just, just a few moments, so I don't think it's simply because the sisters are sad and they're sorrowful and they're weeping. I think it's that Jesus is looking out at this scene and because it's so intensely personal to him because he's friends with this family, he is entering into the pain that is caused because sin has entered into the world and because sin has entered the, into the world, death has entered into the world and because death is in the world, there is sorrow in the world and Jesus is seeing all of these catastrophic effects of sin and death in the world and he's entered into it and he weeps. He weeps. Even though he knows he's going to turn their joy into rejoicing and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's feeling this pain. So, second question. Is Jesus also rejoicing while he's weeping? In other words, is Jesus obeying Paul? (laughs) Right? It's a command. It's an imperative written later. And certainly Paul is just an apostle and Jesus is the son of God. But uh, is it consistent? Is scripture consistent there? Is, Is Jesus obeying the apostle Paul? You know, Jesus was acquainted with sorrow. Told that he's a man of sorrows. Because he really saw the, the root of sin in this issue and the pain that was brought into the world. He, he got it. Paul also knew sorrow. The, these were not men who uh, pretended that all of life was good and happy all of the time. Book 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this at the beginning of the book. He said, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. We got to the point where we thought... Is life over for us? Paul knew sorrow. He knew despair. And yet later in the book, Paul would write this. We are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Jesus wept. We are as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. So at least Paul says it's possible. What do you think? Was Jesus rejoicing at the same moment that Jesus was weeping? I think that he was in this sense. He was weeping over the sorrow of the pain of sin and death and all that that brings into the world and the alienation that people suffer from God. And yet he was rejoicing because he knew that he was shortly to reverse the effects of the curse. Adam's sin, as we've talked about in Romans. And the effect that that brought into the world, the separation of God from man, the separation of man from man and one another, And the conflicts that we experience in our relationships with each other and the conflict we experience in our relationship with God and the frustration we have as we work in this world and not everything functions correctly. Jesus knew that he would uh, restore all of that and he would move people who who chose to trust in him back to the garden, so to speak, back to uh, an idyllic world, a perfect relationship with God and one another and the world. And so Jesus could also rejoice, even in the midst of weeping. Right before Jesus left the earth, uh, he spoke with his disciples and he said this. These things I've spoken to you, 
getting you prepared for my departure, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Uh, Jesus was not pretending. Paul was not pretending. He said, in the world you have tribulation. It is hard. It's hard. This week I sat with two families who lost loved ones. In this world you have tribulation. Jesus says, but take courage. I've overcome. On the cross, I, I, I began that process. That was, the, that was the, the point in time in which God through Christ declared that Christ was victorious and someday he will set all things right as we looked at Romans and the concept of righteousness, God putting all of the world at rights. And yet now in this moment, we live with the, the struggle and the frustration knowing in hope that all things will be set right, and yet day-to-day living with the sorrow of a broken world. And so, as Christians, we live in that tension. And so, uh, rejoicing, or this imperative to rejoice, is fundamentally a choice of our mindset to fix our minds upon that hope that we have that Jesus will set all things right. Remember, in Hebrews it says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't say, boy, this cross sounds like fun. (laughs) It wasn't imaginary. It wasn't wishful thinking. It says he was willing to take on the sorrow and the pain of the cross because he knew the joy set before him. And that's fundamentally what rejoicing is. It's saying in the midst of all of the difficult circumstances, we don't pretend that they don't exist. We don't pretend that they're fun and happy. But we know that Jesus Christ is setting all things right. And he proved his power to do so through the cross. And that's what it means for us to rejoice. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're not there in our study yet, but I want us to look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. Let's start in verse 37. So let's start in verse 35. We've got time. All right. Okay. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We know sorrow. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are secure in Christ. Your destiny is set. That's it. Okay? And when you first trust in Christ, that is not a promise that all of life's circumstances will suddenly become smooth and easy for you. The moment that you trust Christ, when you first say, I believe that Jesus died for me, I accept, I give thanks for his death. The moment that you do that, probably none of your circumstances will change in that moment. And you can anticipate as you go through life facing exactly the same trials and tribulations and frustrations that everyone else in the world faces. The difference is you know your eternal destiny and it is absolutely secure. And you know that when Jesus Christ returns his second time that he will put all of the world to rights. I want you to turn back to 1 Thessalonians with me and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, which is a euphemism for those who have died, 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus. In the Thessalonian church, they were confused about the nature of the resurrection. They didn't know what had happened to their friends and family members who had died. And Jesus said, I don't want you to grieve in the same way that the world grieves. Paul says, I expect you to grieve because we who are left behind miss those that we love. And so we grieve. And we should not pretend that we don't grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves because the world doesn't have hope, which is not wishful thinking. Hope, biblically, is the confident expectation that we will be with God through Jesus Christ forever. So when you grieve, grieve with hope. When you are sorrowful, be sorrowful with joy. And so Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Where do we get the strength to do that? Second exhortation tells us, pray without ceasing or ask for help without ceasing. This word uh, for without ceasing is actually just one word. That's why my um, trick worked, right? Without ceasing. You just put a little, uh, an alpha, uh, one letter in front of a word and it makes it a negative. So it's without ceasing. Uh, What the word means is this. Uh, Let me illustrate for you. The uninterrupted necessary payment of hard taxes Okay, that's without ceasing. When do you do it? Every year, right? <laughs> you fill out your forms every year. You pay every year or else, all right? The continual service of an official in the government, a continual uninterrupted cough. It's a hacking cough. Repeated military attacks, the continual failing of a military effort, the regular and consistent production of fruit. When does it happen? Every year, every year. That's what without ceasing means. It means it just happens over and over and over again and it doesn't stop. It's just a pattern in life. Great illustration of this from uh, the book of Daniel. And we're told that uh, Daniel used to pray. He was separated from Jerusalem. He was in exile. He was in Babylon. And so what he would do is every day he would open his windows toward Jerusalem, toward his home. And every day, three times a day, he would open those windows and he would get on his knees and he would pray back toward Jerusalem. Pray to the Lord. Three times a day. He'd stop his work, open the windows, pray. Close the windows, go back to work. Three times a day. Kept doing it. Every day he did this. This was his cycle. This was his pattern. Then an edict came out that anyone who prayed to anyone other than the king would be thrown into the lion's den. And so what did Daniel do? He prayed without ceasing. Same way, three times a day. Opened the windows, so it was obvious. His enemies who wanted to trap him could see. He didn't change his pattern whatsoever. He opened his windows. They looked in. They saw him praying because he prayed without ceasing. Like a hacking cough. <laughs> just can't get rid of it. Like paying taxes. It's just over and over again. Production of fruit. Okay? Without ceasing. Turn back with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus illustrates this in his sermon. Matthew 7, verse 7. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks it will be opened. In verse 7, those are also imperatives, but they're imperatives in the present tense. And so what that means is uh, it means ask and keep on asking. Okay, Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Jesus says this is how you pray before the Lord. You pray without ceasing. Ask and ask and ask and ask. And keep on asking and asking 
Seek and continue to seek. Knock and continue to knock. And he gives a parable later on about a woman who wanted justice from the judge. And what does she do? She keeps on knocking and banging and harassing. And Jesus says, not this is what God is like, but this is what prayer should be like. Right? God is not like the unjust judge, but he is one who wants us to continuously come to him. And ask and ask and ask and ask. And that's where we draw the strength in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Because we ask and we ask and we ask. And he loves to give good things. God's part in our lives as we're asking and asking and asking is that he intervenes according to his timing and just in his manner. When we ask and we ask and we ask and we say, yet not my will but yours be done. But God understands that though we're, we're looking to the future and our great hope is for eternity, Frequently, we would like things changed right now here. So he says, ask. Ask. Always looking to the future and hope, but ask and then keep on asking. Knock. Seek. Our part is this. Rejoice always. Pray. And don't stop. Even when you're waiting. And then in everything give thanks. Uh, I want you to notice that for Paul, um, prayer and giving of thanks always go hand in hand. Okay? When we're making supplication, we're making requests, we're asking for God to change something in our lives. What keeps our perspective proper on that change is that we're also giving thanks at all times. Philippians 4 verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says, ask for everything. God knows what you want. He knows what you need. And so ask and keep on asking. But as you do so, do so with thanksgiving. That's the third part of the equation that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And then third, in everything, give thanks, cultivate thankfulness. Not, Not for everything, but in everything, right? It's not an exhortation to call evil good and to say these really bad circumstances, I really like them after all. (laughs) It's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying pretend, but he's saying in the midst of these circumstances, still give thanks, cultivate a heart of thankfulness. I want you to turn to Romans with me again in chapter one. In Romans chapter one, where we begin this semester. I want to remind you of something that we looked at earlier in the semester in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul is describing this this downward spiral, this progression of sin. In verse 21 he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Uh, Where did this, this downward spiral, this progression into sin start? Well, they didn't let God be God. They didn't say in their prayer, uh, thy will be done. Nor did they give thanks. Uh, An ungrateful heart, a critical spirit, choosing to look at what they didn't have. We don't have, Adam and Eve recognized, we don't have that one tree. Rather than looking at the fact that we have the whole garden. They chose to focus on what they didn't have. 
because of Satan's temptation. And they didn't give thanks. And Paul says that's how cultures have moved. They have not honored God as God, nor have they given thanks. And so a lack of a grateful heart is one of the first steps for us into a downward progression and spiral of sin. And I've seen it in my own life time after time. I can diagnose myself spiritually and see I'm moving in a bad direction when I'm not thankful. And so what I do when I feel that happening is I literally stop and give thanks. Literally, frequently, I will pull out a piece of paper and start writing things. Uh, it was interesting in this, this article, AP, it was not, not a Christian article at all, but uh, psychologists who've studied gratitude called it an emotional reset button. I thought it was an interesting term. So basically, it, it just it changes your perspective. It doesn't change your circumstances, but it does change your attitude, your perspective. And for me, it happens over and over and over again. I punch the reset button and I just count my blessings. I name them one by one, right? And I just start writing them out, Literally. Uh, One of my primary objectives for myself and my own spiritual life and what I'm I'm hoping to um, train my children to do is to have grateful, thankful hearts. Uh, It's a spiritual discipline and it's a practice that I'm trying to teach them. And there's several reasons I give them for it. First is because God says so. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, right? We're all struggling, you know, what is God's will for my life? And sometimes the things that are a little more finely tuned, like what should your major be? Should you accept this job or that job? Um, you know, should I date and marry this person? Well, sometimes you don't see that in the text of Scripture, do you? But I can tell you one thing. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. I know God's will for you today. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. And so I remind my kids, God says so. God says so, there's a reason. Because he always wants what's best for us. Second, because it protects us from sin. That downward spiral of sin, beginning with not letting God be sovereign, letting God be God, your will be done, and then not giving thanks. Consequently, developing a critical and ungrateful spirit. That's what leads us towards sin. Thankfulness protects us and guards us from sin. Third, because we always have something to give thanks for. You may sit there with a blank page for a while, but don't leave until you begin to write something down. There is always something in your life. You have a pen and paper. You have an opportunity. You're still on this earth and you can praise the Lord. Begin. Okay, there's always something, even in the darkest of circumstances. That's why people like uh, Martin Rinkart could write a, a hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. Fanny Crosby could write amazing hymns of praise to the Lord, and she was blind her entire life. Isaac Watts wrote, Joy to the World. He spent the last 30 years of his life as an invalid. Joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come. Okay? Because the Lord has come. Fourth reason, because it shapes our personality. A thankful heart is one of the things, foundationally, that really shapes who we are and the way that we think. Uh, It was Cicero, Roman philosopher, uh, politician who wrote, a thankful heart is not only the greatest virtue, but it is the parent of all other virtues, which I think is true. I think it's a starting place. Uh, you know, the, the word in Greek for giving thanks is eucharisteo. Does that remind you of anything? Okay. It reminds you of, of, of the Eucharist, which is another word for Lord's Supper 
or communion, the table of the Lord. It is the Eucharist. It's a Thanksgiving meal. I want you to think about the paradox again of the, of the Thanksgiving meal. What we celebrate at the Thanksgiving meal is someone's death, right? We're giving thanks for that moment in time, which was the greatest miscarriage of justice, when a perfectly innocent man died for the sins of others. And Jesus says, on that day, every time you do it, I want you to give thanks. Give thanks to God. We're not calling evil good, but we're seeing beyond that moment and what it accomplished. And so it is the Eucharist. It is the thanksgiving. We all gather together, and as a body of believers together, we say, God, we thank you. We thank you that though in the midst of really difficult and trying circumstances, we have hope, we have confidence that we will forever be with the Lord because Christ completely removed the debt of our sins. And so we give thanks. I want to give you a couple application points um, this morning. I'm going to give you, give you three, actually. The first is, uh, if you have never, for that first time, said, God, I, I give you thanks. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I understand that he, he died for the sins of the world, but I also understand he died for me. Thank you. I accept, as Mike prayed earlier, I accept that free gift. I'm not bringing you anything. I'm not offering promises of what my life will become. I'm not, it's not what I'm giving to you. I'm just accepting that absolutely free gift. I'd encourage you, if you've never done that this morning, you say, God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Okay? Second application point, if you have made that decision, uh, maybe a critical spirit has kind of crept in and uh, a lack of thankfulness. I want you today, literally, get out a pad of paper, write down just three things you are thankful for. Then every day this week, I want you to pull out the same piece of paper and just add two more. And I want you sometime this week to show that piece of paper to somebody else. Okay? Share your thankful heart with somebody else. Uh, my, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving for several reasons. I love the food, but you know you get the same food at Christmas, so that's not the total reason. I, I, I love it because... Uh, there's, there's no artificially imposed deadline for purchasing and giving a gift. I don't have to worry about that yet. Right? I can postpone that a little bit longer. Um, there's no pressure there. But the holiday is focused on giving of thanks. And so our family has a tr- the tradition we sit around the table. And uh, before we get up from the meal, we just go around the table and we tell one thing we're thankful for. I just, I just love that, that simple tradition. So the holiday has passed, but it's not too late to give thanks. Okay? Now, third application point. Uh, you'll notice that I'm letting you out early. I want you to give thanks. <laughs> because next week you're going to be back in Romans and it won't happen again for a long time. So I just want you to give thanks. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I do give you thanks for Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray f- uh, for any here who, this morning um, who may be suffering from uh, the circumstances that, that life has brought them who may be grieving. I think especially of uh, the Ness family and the Barwick family who, who lost loved ones this week. Father, and others who are reminded on the holidays of loss, I pray, Father, that in their grief, you would bring them joy, that they would be reminded of the great hope that they have in Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.